Welcome to The End Game, a podcast about the positive aspects of aging with grace, with joy, and with purpose. I'm your host, Don Auction. Thanks for tuning in. Let's get on with today's show. Our interview guest today has some fascinating insights into attention deficit disorder, a condition that often masquerades as other disorders, including dementia. But first, we begin our podcast with an essay by Susie Kaufman, a writer who speaks to our generation. This selection is from her book, Twilight Time, Aging in Amazement. Living Arrangements You have no interest in my mother. Why should you? She was not a headliner. She was not noteworthy outside the family and our immediate neighborhood on the Upper West Side. There she induced a certain energy field, like minor royalty, a second cousin of a third-tier baroness. Her generation long gone, there were only a handful of people left who remember her powdered face, chalk white with pink circles of rouge on her cheeks, and cerulean smudges on her eyelids, the seams on her stockings almost straight. How remarkable, then, that DNA dictates that her ghost has now moved its furnishings into my body. It's an almost perfect fit, my osteoporotic spine bending to accommodate hers, my thighs expanding to make room for her ample shape. I keep my used Kleenex in the waistband of my pants, as she did, and have recently elected to wear my hair parted on the left with a jaunty wave over my right eye. Caroline, expertly wielding the comb and scissors, comments that it has a 20s look, and sure enough, there is my mother's marcelled cut from long before I was born, coming into focus in the salon mirror. Once about five years before she died in 2006, I broke down in tears in Great Barrington when she suffered an excruciating compression fracture far away in California. Feeling helpless and anguished, it suddenly became clear to me that she had been my first home, that there was a time in 1945 when I lived inside of her in a warm, dark, wet tenement that she carried around with her when she squeezed the melons at the fruit stand and picked out a seeded rye at the bakery on Upper Broadway. Of course, being well into my 50s, I knew all about gestation, but somehow I had always given more thought to my own pregnancy, my own motherhood. This moment of recognition near the turning of the millennium was a first encounter with my deep origins in the swampy folds of my mother's flesh. The image is like a bellows, expanding and contracting, inflaming memory. Sometimes the fire is reduced to embers. The long years of adolescence and early adulthood, when I didn't want any part of her, 
the bitter winter in my garden where her ashes are now resting, for the most part unattended. I thought when I buried them that she and I would chat regularly about the anemones, about the grandchildren, about the unrelenting passage of time. But words don't seem to be the medium of our exchange. She speaks to me through my short legs and misshapen feet, my pale blue lashless eyes. She inhabits me as I inhabited her 70 years ago. And she keeps me company. She is there in every gesture. When I throw back my head to wash down a pill, when I drink my coffee out of a thin porcelain cup, I have grown up and drink it black now, not light and sweet with non-dairy creamer and saccharin as she did. But I am still married to the aristocratic pinky lift that I must have learned at her linen-covered dining room table. My father was morbidly sentimental. You couldn't go to a matinee with him without the crumpled handkerchief coming out of his pants pocket to dry the tears that fell at every cinematic loss or betrayal. But my mother was ensconced in her corset and devoted to decorum. When she was hurt or angry, she would take to her bed. When she felt the need to cry, she would leave the room. She couldn't bear the exposure of open grieving or gratitude, retreating to the kitchen while my sister's husband, only 60, lay dying. Hiding in a dark corner of a back room while her circle of friends and family celebrated her birthday with rounds of rye and ginger ale. Now, traveling as she is inside of my life, wandering through my days along the highway of hyper-awareness on the far side of several personal and historical upheavals, she cries openly all of the time. It is my gift to her. Susie Kaufman writes regularly at 70-something. You can read more of her essays at susiekaufman.substack.com. So I am truly excited to introduce our guest today. Gina Perra is an internationally recognized educator on adult attention deficit disorder, especially on how ADHD can affect relationships. She is the author of Is It You, Me? Or a adult ADD, stopping the roller coaster when someone you love has attention deficit disorder. And there's a title that says it all. She has also written two subsequent books on ADHD and relationships. And I am proud to add that Gina has been a great friend for more than 40 years, but who's counting? And I'm so delighted, Gina, that you could make time for this podcast today. I'm honored to be here, Don. You know what I was thinking this morning is that when you met me, or right now I'm three times older than when we met. <laughs> it's a morbid. <laughs> I am so happy to be with you, folks. You may not know it, but Don, as a um, magazine editor, 
nurtured a lot of young writers who went on to do really great things. And he was incredibly patient with us greenhorns and with our insecurities and whatever. So thank you for that, Don. You're kind. Anyway, we're going to talk about aging, right? ADHD and aging. Yes. Let me let me start with your, your interest in this subject. If if I understand correctly, your interest in ADD is something that you married into. Is that essentially right? Yes, that is right. Although once you learn about ADHD, and I have to explain why my book is ADD and ADHD, that's a common point of confusion. Once you learn about it, you can go back in your life and go, oh, you know, that explains a lot. Like my cousin uh when we went to hot springs with our mothers and he thought it would be great fun to put all the motels pool furniture in the pool and um and i was just like what (laughs) what is he doing well he grew up to have a lot of problems related to adhd and he actually just died recently and i think prematurely and um probably self-medicated with alcohol and uh, politics, actually. But um, so you go back and you once you learn and, and you see what it is, but when you're living intimately with someone, sharing a bank account and chores and everything else, it becomes that much more obvious and um, expedient <laughs> that something be addressed. Well, so what were some of your husband's behaviors that didn't make sense to you that you figured out were ADD related later? Well, as I say, there's always this camouflage for ADHD. We have the human brain likes to solve puzzles. And so we come up with explanations, whether they're right or not, you know, that remains to be seen. But, you know, it's why we like mystery books and detective shows. We like to solve the puzzles. So he was doing some odd things, um, missing the freeway exit, um, showing up for a date without any money. Um, that he had asked me on, <laughs> um, getting in two car accidents, more uh, fender benders, but still it was on the freeway in our first month of dating and all these things. Well, I'm looking, okay, well, let's, what, <laughs> what explains these things? Okay, first of all, he is a native French speaker. So I thought, oh, we have some communication issues because he's a native French speaker. And I thought, but no, he got his PhD at, and in English, I mean, in science, in the English language. So that can't be it. And then I thought, well, it's because he's an only child and he never had to really do anything at home. He didn't have to share anything. He didn't have to do chores, whatever. And no, it didn't quite explain everything. And then it was because he was a scientist, right? We hear about the absent-minded scientist and absent-minded professor. And I asked my friend Penny, who's married right. to a journalist, another journalist married to a scientist. I said, Penny, does Richard miss the freeway exit a lot? She says, puts down her gin and tonic all the freaking time. So I thought, oh, he's a scientist. But, you know, it, it took a while. And... The only way I discovered it is because I have a very eclectic reading habit. You know, I would go into the library and look at the new books. And I found one called Change Your Brain, Change Your Life by Daniel Amen, who's um, a psychiatrist, is California-based. And I read it and I thought, 
this is very interesting. And there was a part that addressed ADHD. And I went to my husband and I said, doesn't this sound, do you think this is for real? Uh, doesn't this sound a lot like you used to be as a child? And he says, it sounds like me now. And, and I'm like, well, how did we not know about this? How did a well-read journalist who knows a little about everything and a scientist who did his postdoc at a neuro, a famous neurological institute and whose ex-girlfriend was a neurosurgeon and who was around all these other PhD smart people, molecular biologists, how come they didn't figure this out? Why did it take a journalist to figure this out? And I just thought, this is crazy, you know? And the more I researched it, this was a huge story. Um, unrecognized ADHD just permeates so many problems, chronic problems for individuals, for families, for society, for the world, um, that it was crazy that nobody was talking about it or educating about it, including, you know, a lot of mental health professionals. So, and doctors, doctors, very early I saw, because I started leading a support group, I volunteered to do this, and I started hearing about various physical conditions, diabetes and sleep disorders and um, hypertension and obesity. And, and I said, these must be connected ADHD. I mean, these are, you know, they're in the regular population, but it seems more concentrated. And just recently, they came up with a big study um, using what's called the Swedish registry. You know, they have an NHS there where everything is recorded, whatever happens to you medically from birth to death. And so it's a very useful tool for researching these things. And they found indeed People with ADHD had higher risk of all these things, metabolic disorders, hypertension, cardiac issues, sleep disorders, diabetes, um, asthma. And some things are genetically linked to ADHD, for example, asthma, and but some things are lifestyle linked. And that figures in prominently with what we're gonna talk today, the about today, the lifestyle link. Okay, well, let's back up just a little bit um, to ask what is ADD? Is it, is it a mood disorder? Is it, is it a form of autism? What, what do we know about it? You know, we know a lot about it. And once I started looking into the science and going to the professional conferences and meeting people, I mean, a lot of these researchers are my acquaintances, if not friends, I was really impressed with their rigor and, <clears throat> You know, a lot of the other specialties, bipolar, sleep, diabetes, sometimes they tend to be very tunnel visioned and just their thing. But ADHD specialists know they can't be that, not with any honesty, because ADHD affects so much of your life and your physiology. Because we're talking about, nothing is simple about the brain, but we're talking about mainly one neurotransmitter called dopamine. And this is the so-called reward neurochemical, but it also carries a lot of messages throughout your body, such as the autonomic nervous system, your breathing rate, um, gastric motility, how fast something goes, you know, how fast food goes through your GI tract. Dopamine controls a lot of these things. Um, coordination, gait, you know, all these things. 
So, um, sorry, once I get going, I, I don't, but anyway, what is it? Um, the formal term now is ADHD, and that's Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder, but there's informally a slash at hyperactivity, meaning it's optional. And this helps some people understand that you don't have to have physical hyperactivity. In fact, most adults do not. So what it is, I call it extreme human syndrome. And that is that there's no trait uh, associated with ADHD that is not in the general population. We all procrastinate sometimes. We all want to do the fun thing before the hard thing sometimes. Um, we all forget sometimes, you know, all these things. Um, we might have, tr we all have trouble organizing our thoughts sometimes. But with ADHD, we're talking about a significant, you know, over on the spectrum, higher. And that's, it could be in a few of the symptoms that are very severe, or it could be in all 18 symptoms, uh, a little bit more. So we're talking about a highly variable syndrome and it affects individuals. And there's a lot of other to your genetic, a lot else to your genetic makeup, your personality, all these things. But um, that's that's what it is. Does that make sense? So it's a it's a it's a it's a chemical deficiency, uh, uh, not enough dopamine. Well, or, essentially, or it's um, essentially it's that the dopamine molecules are are transmitting somewhat erratically. And it depends on what's happening. If it's something that someone's very interested in, then that releases dopamine because it's our interest in something that releases dopamine. So if someone is very interested in something, then the dopamine flows. But when they have to do something that's harder or more tedious, even if it's important, uh, uh, <laughs> the dopamine might not be happening. So the um, single most effective treatment for ADHD is stimulant medication. And the way those work is if you've heard of SSRIs, um, serotonin reuptake inhibitors for antidepressants, they work almost exactly the same way, but just on a different molecule. Um, where SSRIs work on serotonin, simulants are dopamine reuptake inhibitors. And what they do is they hold the dopamine molecule between the two brain cells to give it time to communicate the message. Because brain cells communicate by spitting out neurochemicals, each one down the neural pathway chain. And with ADHD, it might be, it could be several things, not enough dopamine is being produced or the reuptake, the recycler, is just hyperactive. And it recycles that dopamine before it can relay the message to the next brain cell. So it slows that reuptake. Okay. Does that make sense? So, and that, <laughs> that can make a huge difference for people. Well, okay, I know. It's, it's, it's complicated, but, but let me... If you just think of how antidepressants work for depression, right. it's a similar thing. Okay. So I'm, I'm going to cite an example that I'm familiar with uh, that relates to something you were saying about a focused interest. Uh, I know a young man who's, uh, who's 40 now, uh, did great in high school and 
up to high school and did fine in college, went to a good school, um, got to law school and crashed and was diagnosed with ADD, and it was the first time we had realized it. Oh, I forgot. I'm talking about my son. Um, But he had always been able to study what he wanted to study and fake his way through everything else. When he got to law school, none of it was interesting, but he had to study it anyway or he couldn't pass, and that's when he crashed, and that's, that's how we found out. I guess that's not an unusual story. That is such a common story. It's, well, it, that doesn't make it any less remarkable or kind of shocking because usually with most things that you would categorize as mental health, there's been, it's been obvious before. It doesn't just usually come on. I mean, there's some things like schizophrenia can come on in your 20s. and But it's, you just, you you tend to think that it must be something environmental. Like he just doesn't like, he does not love the law, you know, or the law doesn't love him or it's the wrong school or the teachers or whatever, because he's done so well up till now. So unless you know to think about ADHD and that interest, it, yeah, it can elude you. And another thing is, that's exactly right about if you're not everybody with ADHD is smart, but the people who are smart, above average smart, grade school, high school, they often don't have to study. It's sickening, really, how easy it can be for them. and um, But it catches up with them later because they haven't developed study habits. They haven't developed organizational habits around project management priorities, sleep, this kind of thing. So it, it, it's really, um, it's hard for them to develop these skills later in life. So most of the people that are listening to this podcast are getting on in years. Is it, is it worth addressing uh, ADHD at, for them at this, this late in the game? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I've had... Um, I mentioned that I started volunteering when I learned about that. And I live in Silicon Valley. And so I started holding public lectures and meetings in Palo Alto. And I've held meetings there for it's like 15 years now. And it has not been infrequent that we've had an 80-year-old come to the group and say, I just got diagnosed. And they just, they couldn't believe it. It, it, it was very gratifying and validating, you know, for one thing, because they thought I was trying, I wasn't a bad kid. Um, I wasn't all these things that some people said I was, I had this. And, you know, a lot of them that figure it out, they're going to be smarter than average too. And a lot of them had figured that they needed a structured work environment, for example, and they needed structured habits. Uh, such as one always wore a shirt with a pocket so he could carry his little flip paper pad. And that's where he kept his day's task on and would constantly refer to it. So, you know, when those guys talk, when the older people talk about things like that, the younger people in the group, you know, all holding their devices, they, they don't even know what they're talking about. <laughs> you know, put paper in your pocket. <laughs> uh, what? Used paper? How does that work? Yeah. <laughs> 
So, um, so even for like people who aren't, who are doing okay, uh, who have done okay in life, it's, but still had a harder time of it. It explains a lot. So that can be very validating. It can also be, um, helpful in the genetic sense where you're diagnosed and then you go, oh, maybe that son or daughter, maybe that's what's up with that son or daughter and the grandchild. And so you have this whole family-wide kind of recognition and acknowledgement, which is nice, especially nice for the grandchild that doesn't feel singled out with a diagnosis and grandpa or grandma could say, oh, that's me too or something. But, you know, even, um, even at that age, if you don't have physical conditions that would contraindicate stimulants, some people might take them. In fact, I learned this a long time ago, they used to give rather routinely to the elderly uh, stimulants for depression. And, and they stopped doing it. And I'm not sure why, except for, you know, cardiac risk, but I'm, you know, I never saw any research if, if there was any about the risk of that, but, and they called it depression. So it's interesting. And this is why ADHD often gets misdiagnosed because it can look like depression. You know, when you're not at your job anymore, when you've retired, you don't have that connectedness, you don't have the reward, you're just kind of poking around, going to the grocery store and going to the 12 items or less lane and telling people like me, you had 13 items. <laughs> you know, you just try to busy yourself with all kinds of things. And um, so, um, and that's another thing. <laughs> so much camouflage you think oh we did perfectly well or she did perfectly well in her job and so this must be senility this must be um depression because it looks like depression anxiety adhd can look like anxiety because what you have is what's called cognitive anxiety in how you're thinking you're always thinking what am i what have i missed this time what have i got to do how am i going to do this and uh, a lot of anxiety related to ADHD symptoms causing you to forget and be disorganized and whatever, or say the wrong thing, or you never know when you're going to slip on that invisible banana peel. So it can look like anxiety. So this is really important because if you're getting diagnosed with depression or anxiety and you're given an antidepressant such as an SSRI, and the core problem is ADHD, it can actually intensify your ADHD symptoms. But at the same time, it might knock back your anxiety so you think you're better, but you're gaining weight, you have less initiation, you're less motivated, less organized. Then, hello memory clinic. I mean, you know, these are very, there's a lot of things to talk about with ADHD and aging. Right, are there some, some tip-offs that some types of behavior that might suggest to somebody, oh, it's not depression, it's, it's ADHD. What, what are some things that people are typically doing? You mean older people or younger people? Working age people or retired well, let, let's, people? Let's start with, with working age people and then work our way up. Um, 
might be um, what's called workaholics. Um, you know, they come home late from work. The spouse is angry because they've had, you know, full care of the kids after their own job. I mean, it's different now with COVID, but so it's be, it'll be seen as workaholism when really what it might be is inefficiency at work, not organize, being able to organize their day. Having trouble writing can be a huge issue because writing you're, you organize thoughts in your brain, right? And that is a problem with ADHD. To the internal, that internal voice can be kind of weak with ADHD. So I know some guys in the local group, they'll take like six hours to write a simple email to a client. Because they wanted, and then you have this issue of perfectionism because they don't know when is good enough. Yeah, that's what I would assume. They don't know when it's good enough. And so, yeah, people with ADHD can look like perfectionists too. The core challenge of ADHD is self-regulation. Self-regulation in what you eat, in your activities, in your emotional responses, in how you manage your time, in how you manage your priorities. Self-regulation, not going too far this way, or the other way, but trying to find the middle. So perfectionism or just not doing it entirely. It's the middle ground that's hard to do. Is this like executive function? Is that what we're talking yeah, about? Yeah, executive functions, that's a lot of people know that term now. It's, um, it's a theoretical model and there's no real professional consensus on what it is or how they work or um, but within the field of ADHD, we have a few experts that have particularly tailored a model that's helpful to understanding ADHD, not only to understand what's happening, but to target solutions. Um, and what we talk about is, as one expert, Russell Barkley says, it's not that people with ADHD don't know what to do. It's that they can't do what they know. So if you have, if a person is always showing up late to an event and then there's always going to be the helpful friend to say, if you just left the house on time, you know, or if you just used the planner, have you tried alarms? You know, and, and these people are like, yeah, I've been doing that for 30 years. It doesn't work. Because we have a very fuzzy concept of time with ADHD. It's called time blindness. And so that hmm. can af affect executive functions. We talk about now and not now. Whatever is interesting the person with ADHD right now is the most important thing and nothing else exists promises made, other deadlines. That's all not now. And th these are just, you know, these these are just like stereotypical. There's, you know, variations on this. But so we use executive function supports to help anchor a person in time and to manage time and priorities, um, you know, to get a real sense of time. I had a client very smart man, um, a therapist who specialized in uh, something else. And turns out he 
he had never used a calendar planner and they he and his wife have eight children and and, and I said, well, how do you, and he's working three different jobs. He has a private practice and he teaches. So it's like oddball times, eight kids. Um, and how do you do this? And he says, well, my wife gives me a list in the morning of what to do. And I said, well, but how do you plug that into your um, daily schedule? He's, he didn't even understand what I meant. Because his whole life he's had somebody else telling him when, where to go when to be but it got to be a problem when she was telling him you need to do the laundry you need to do this and whatever and he's like well where do i fit that in with my school you know um grading papers and private clients and it just i had him i said just look at this i sent him a weekly planner half an hour segments and i said just block out your anchors you know if you teach this class at 10 a.m to 12 block that out if you're in charge of the kids from two to four block that out and then see what's left and you can plug in chores and things and he says i don't know how to do that literally he says i'll have to get my wife to help me and he's great because he says i know this sounds like i'm really stupid and I said, no, I know you're not stupid. You're very bright. You just don't, you just are time blind and you've never had to get time glasses because somebody else has always been shuttling you along to where you're supposed to be. Except for now, COVID, you know, COVID brought ADHD out of the woodwork. That's for sure. Because more people were exposed to it at long, long periods of time. Like families are trapped together. Exactly. <laughs> Exactly. And, um, you know, not being able to impulsively go out to this or that, you know, if they're the type that like to get a lot of stimulation, can't go anywhere, um, have to share things, have to share a space with the kids. Um, yeah, it, it was. And also the other spouse, too they just go to work. Work was kind of their respite, you know, to get away from it. And then they were in it all the time. And they saw just, and they'd see that their spouse would take five hours to write one email. They didn't know. They, they thought they were just, you know, workaholics, but they, you know, they're literally, are you still working on that email? So they saw a lot of things. Yeah. You've talked some about medication, and you've also talked a bit about therapy. Uh, is it your sense that the medication really needs the therapy to go with it to be effective? Yes. And the thing is, people say, oh, well, my husband or wife resists therapy. And I think if you have ADHD and you're a certain age, you probably tried therapy before, and you realize the therapist just has no clue what, what you are dealing with. And so it's not so much therapy resistant as why waste my time on somebody who doesn't have a clue and it's just going to frustrate us. So it's really important to find someone who does understand ADHD. Otherwise, you can just keep talking about your feelings. And that gets somebody with ADHD maybe even more pessimistic and about their childhood. And right now, 
there's this movement. It's really shocking to me. I call it the trauma industrial complex. And that's a lot of people, these therapists and some MDs that actually they're making a lot of money. I think uh, going around talking about this and writing books and retreats saying that ADHD is caused by trauma. And so the person will think they have to be in trauma therapy. Well, if the trauma therapist also understands ADHD and understands the dual component, meaning if you grow up undiagnosed and maybe with a parent undiagnosed, guaranteed there's going to be some level of trauma, either in, constantly misunderstood, uh, criticized, um, rejected, uh, yelled at by your parents, whatever. But so you deal with that too, but you can't see the trauma as causative of ADHD because you're just not going to get anywhere. So when you talk about therapy, it's important to know what kind of therapy. And the first thing that should happen is what's called psychoeducation. And um, people in my group say, psycho what, Gina? And it means getting educated in your diagnosis, getting thoroughly grounded in what it is, um, how it manifests for you, what are your options, what are your specific challenges, what would you like to improve, how can you do that given this diagnosis and the context of what we know about evidence-based treatments. And that is something that should be basic, but it hardly ever happens. And what usually happens is somebody delays, 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 and then they finally go because they've just lost a job or their spouse has threatened divorce. They go, they find some doctor to do a quickie diagnostic, and then they give them Adderall. And, you know, there's no education. There's no adjustment. You know, you go from, you can go from like seeing a cluttered room and not seeing the clutter, <laughs> you know, to seeing every bit of clutter all of a sudden. Now, do you know how to organize? Maybe. Some people, they take a simulant, and yeah, they can go organize the garage like they never could, but others don't, and it's overwhelming, and so they stop the medication. So there really should be ADHD-specific therapy, which is hard to find. One chapter of your book it was titled, Why the Wrong Therapy is Worse Than No Therapy. It's been a dozen years since that was published. Is that still a big problem? Oh, yes. And the further west you go, the worse it is. <laughs> I don't know why that is. But um, like your area in Baltimore and um, on up to uh, Harvard and Penn, UPenn, those have some really good ADHD specialists. But the further west you go, you got all kinds of crackpot theories. <laughs> it's just... It's just, uh, I don't know how to explain it. And it's all up and down the West. It's from Vancouver to San Diego. So it's been a challenge for me to try to help people with my hands tied behind my back. You know, if I just had a prescription pad, I could do it. But yeah, it's, and I say this not to scare people from getting an evaluation or diagnosis, but to get educated first. And then that way they have a sense of it and they can better vet a potential healthcare provider as to what they know or don't know. 
Gina, this has been great. It's been really wonderful to talk to you, and it's just like old times. So thank you for taking time from your busy schedule to be on the podcast. And major plaudits to you for the work you're doing educating the public and the medical community on a very complex health issue. Thanks, Don. It's, um, especially for your audience, it's really important. You can learn more about Gina Perro's work with ADHD by visiting her website, ADHDrollercoaster.org. Thanks for listening to our podcast. You can also subscribe to our free weekly newsletter, The Endgame, at theendgame.substack.com. I'm Don Auction, wishing you all the best in aging with grace, with joy, and with purpose. I hope you'll join us for future programs here at The Endgame.
come. 